hosts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. Well, thank you and welcome to this edition of Common Sense Investing. Today, we are going to dispense with all the market talk. I know things have gotten a little squirrely here in the last week or so since we took a break for Thanksgiving um, because I have Adam Abraham sitting next to me. And Adam is an attorney at law, specializes in taxes and works with a lot of small businesses. And I thought it'd be a good time you know, to sit down and go through a few things with you. Adam, thank you so much for coming on. Hi, Eric. Thank you for having me. You're, you're, of course. You know, the, at the beginning of the year, people say, okay, this is going to be the year I'm going to get my estate planning done. Or this is the year I'm really going to take a look at, you know, doing the taxes right. So I figure, you know what? Let's get a head start on it. Now, when we were sitting here getting ready to uh, record you had made the comment that that now is a good tax time. And I don't know about that because I'm paying taxes. A good tax time for me is when I'm not paying any taxes. But what did you mean by that comment? Well, absolutely. And I know some folks will disagree with me, especially if you look at the cap on state and local taxes and real estate taxes, or in some cases, state and local taxes and sales tax. Also, the limitations on the deduction of mortgage interest, mm-hmm. uh, which has gone down to 750000 So I know some folks will disagree with me, of right. course. But when I say it's a good tax time, huh? what I mean to say is for the next few years, up until 2025, that tax year, the rates are probably going to be as low as they're going to be for quite a while. Okay. The reason why is that you have to take a view of the big picture. Uh Aside from the fact that a lot of the provisions from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act will expire by then. I know some are permanent. Right. What you have to look at is that there are entitlements that people receive. uh, Social Security. Uh There's Medicare. Right. Of course, Medicaid. At this point, only 30% of those who are eligible to take it, and that means at this point, like baby boomers, for example, uh-huh. I'm not talking about uh, disability, uh, social security, disability income, or anything like that. Just generally speaking, if right. you've reached retirement age, uh, the baby boom generation, only 30% have taken these entitlements. Uh-huh. And it's already a problem. Right. Why is it a problem? There are problems with funding it. There aren't any reserves. We've right. borrowed against it. Right. And this is only 2019. I know we're close to 2020. Mm-hmm. In the year 2030, presumably most, if not all, of the baby boomers, because the baby boomer generation ended in 1964, will have taken some sort of retirement. Right. Will they be able to? Right. Will it be there? Are they prepared? Are they prepared for it? Right. And Social Security should be viewed really as a supplement to retirement, not as retirement 
income or the sole source retirement income itself. Right. Here's the problem. In order to properly fund it, and there'll be pushback politically, of course, to fund the entitlements, we have to do something. We have to raise taxes. Right. There's a study that came out that said that in order to fully fund it, because remember, we've borrowed against it. Mm-hmm. We don't have any reserves. We'd have to raise the top tax bracket, taxable in- income percentage to 88%. That won't happen. There'll be plenty of That's pushback. That's a big gulp. <laughs> that is a big gulp. As far as the other tax brackets. Right. So you believe increase. so you believe in general that taxes are going to have to go up. Taxes are going to have to go up also if you study mm-hmm. and I'm not commenting on the merits right. by the way of particular politicians tax plans. Right. But almost all of them talk about raising taxes. Right. Granted a lot of it comes from those who are on the left side of the aisle. Right. But you don't hear about helping folks reduce their taxes. Right. And we're not just talking about the top 1%. We're talking about all the rest of us. Right. The middle class, especially. Yeah. Or those in the lower quintile who actually don't pay taxes because they don't earn enough income. Yeah. So let me ask you this. You said a lot of these things are going to sunset in 2025. The estate tax uh, exclusion is now at, what, 11.4 million dollars, right? Yes. And that went up from $5 million over over the last year. It went up from 5.58 because it went up according to the cost of living. Right. Okay. To to 11.4. Correct. So come 2025. And, and I'm and I'm guessing that this has put a lot of people in the position of saying, OK, well, we don't need to do any estate planning because the estate tax isn't going to kick in until it's eleven million dollars. So we're going to put that off. But if if it's if it comes true that taxes are going to be increased, one of the best ways that I think for them to do it in a silent way is to allow that $11 million to come back down to $5 million. That brings in extra revenue to the coffers, right? Well, it will. However, keep in mind that even if the state tax exclusion amounts were reduced from $11.4 million per person uh-huh. to $5 million, mm-hmm. and let's assume there's no cost of living adjustment, you still would have a situation where 99% of us would not have to worry about paying federal state taxes. Right. But keep in mind that you'd also have to look at the particular state or if you're in the District of Columbia, a jurisdiction you live in, you have to see, first of all, what are the state or local jurisdictions t- state tax rates. Mm-hmm. You also have to see if there's any portability. Not all jurisdictions have the portability, which means... If you have a spouse, let's say, who had a net worth of only $2 million, where the estate tax exclusion was 5 and that would mean that when that spouse passed, $3 million is unused. With portability, if the proper election was made at the death of the first spouse, 
the surviving spouse could use the unused $3 million and have $8 million in state tax exclusion. Right. Right. But keep in mind that not all states employ that tool. Also, I had a client who has a situation where he has purchased a lot of real estate in Minnesota. He has a family member who works out there and uh-huh. has given him some advice. That person's a real estate agent. He's bought some real property. Right. But the problem is Minnesota's estate tax exclusion amounts are only $2 million per right. person. Right. So he has an issue, right. not with the federal, but with the state. Mm-hmm. You mentioned about state planning. And, and Maryland was like that for a long while, too. Maryland was a million for the, a long time. The state time. and the federal limits didn't line up. We were very surprised that Maryland decided to couple or recouple right. back with the Fed. Yeah. Because a lot of people were. And the reason why was Maryland sort of loses out on any collection of estate tax. But one of the reasons why they did it was they don't have to worry about enforcing it. So right. the federal, does, the feds do the job for them, gotcha. assuming one falls within the zone of being um, exposed to a state tax. But I was going to say that we talk about people thinking that they don't have to do any estate planning because they don't have to worry about any estate tax. There are a lot of other reasons to uh, get an estate plan. Right. I'll start off with one of the most important reasons to get an estate plan. And by the way, most of us have something that we have to worry about, that we have to protect, an asset to protect or something we want to leave to a loved one. Right. They came out, when I say they, there was a study that came out that said out of all those who pass, which is every one of us at some <laughs> point, 65% did not have a will. And nothing. How many? What was 65%. 65%. If, I'll give you an example of disastrous consequences okay. that can occur if you do not have a will. If you live in D.C. and you, you're married, you don't have any kids, did you know that quarter of your estate, if you pass intestate, that means without a will. Right goes to your parents. I did not know that. Yes. DC has some interesting intestate laws, right. if you will. And there are the whole litany of situations where if you have like a half sibling, that sort of thing. So it doesn't matter if you're, you're married and you have children, you die intestate without a will, a quarter of your property is going goes to, to your, your parents. Going to your parents. Well, how about this? Let's say you're in Maryland. That might surprise your spouse, wouldn't it? It would surprise your spouse very much. <laughs> Virginia, it automatically goes to the surviving spouse. But okay. let's say uh-huh. you live in Maryland and you have a spouse and two kids and no will. The spouse doesn't get everything. The kids get half. In Maryland. Yeah. Now the spouse gets an allowance. Um Forty thousand, and um, spouse gets a share. Their minor children, spouse gets a, a cut or a, or a dollar amount per minor child living in the house. But you would think 
if you were their surviving spouse, you'd get everything. Usually that's what happens, right? That's Not what most people here. assume. That's what right. they assume. But then there are other reasons to have estate planning. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to make clear before we go any further, a will is just part of the estate plan. Right. Estate plan might necessitate the use of trusts. Uh, it certainly could necessitate the use of an advanced directive, a power of attorney. Certain types of trust, depending on the type of estate you have, or you have special needs child. If your estate is over a certain amount, child support trust, that sort of thing. If you're exposed to estate tax, you might have to do some sophisticated estate tax planning. Right. So, so, so the basis of it all is the will. The will's the basis of it. Okay. Absolutely. And then you have things like the, uh, the revocable living trust, which a lot of folks who have trust, that's the flavor that they have, so to speak. You know, uh, you take care of your exclusions, push off the other part to your... So revocable living trusts mm-hmm. are a great tool for probate avoidance. Mm-hmm. It's not a one-size-fits-all proposition, however. Right. And I come across people who, who say, look, at a party, my brother-in-law said, I should get a revocable living trust. They may or they may not. You have to talk it out with them. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind the revocable living trust does not provide any shield from any creditors. You could have an irrevocable living trust, which mm-hmm. means you can't change it. Mm-hmm. But keep in mind that certain assets should not be held in a revocable living trust. Think real estate. Right. And if the trust asset earns over $12,500, you're subject to tax. This is the irrevocable living trust, by the way, subject to tax at the highest rate. The irrevocable living trust must have its own tax ID number. In contrast, the revocable living trust is tied into your social security number. So any income that's earned, that's an asset of that revocable living trust, it goes on your 1040. Mm-hmm. So most of, most of the irrevocable trust that I've seen in, in by 20 some years of being in financial services have typically come in the form of what they call the islet, right? A life insurance trust. The irrevocable life insurance trust where the trust is formed almost for the sole purpose of purchasing a life insurance policy to be paid to the kids for estate taxes later. Do people still use, utilize islets? Not as much. But I think there are a couple of reasons why they do not. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I've come across people who have executed islets many years ago. And you could say that they really don't need it now, but that's no reason to get rid of it. Of course, they could stop paying premiums and it goes away. So you leave it alone. But one reason why people don't usually get islets today is that, of course, you don't have to worry much about. Uh, an estate tax problem. Islets was very easy to use. It was a, a low-hanging fruit as far as estate planning tools because people didn't usually think about their insurance. Right. They put it into trust. They left it alone. If there's any issue as far as investments, let's say it was a whole life policy, for example, that was transferred to trust or was taken out when the trust was in existence. So in other words, you executed an islet and maybe a month later, you know, you were getting approval for insurance. And a month later, the trust was actually deposited or transferred 
into the islet. So the islet trustee owned the trust and you took it out of your estate for estate tax purposes. Mm-hmm. You don't have that as much anymore, although you do have, you do have people who want to take out large uh, insurance policies. Mm-hmm. And so you still want to consider the islet to take that particular asset out of uh, the exposure to estate tax. People don't realize that when you pass under the Internal Revenue Code, you look at all the assets you own, whether you, you jointly hold an asset, whether you have a retirement account that's a non-probate asset, like an asset of contract, whether you have life insurance. You add all that stuff up together to determine at least what your gross estate is right. for estate tax purposes. And then you look at other, at other things to determine what are you actually exposed to in terms of estate tax. But the second reason I think people don't get islets is there's sort of a little bit of a distrust of the insurance industry or Mm -hmm. an idea that they don't really need insurance. And that Mm -hmm. goes to the financial planning part of it. Right. There's still a need, in my opinion, to get some sort of insurance for, if nothing else, for financial planning. Mm -hmm. Insurance can be used as a great estate planning tool, but I think people don't realize that it is an effective estate planning tool. And why? Because tax... It's not just deferred, but sort of eliminated. Mm-hmm. And there are very few types of estate or financial planning tools that ha- eliminate tax. A lot of it's mostly tax deferred. So an example, you have an IRA, you're going to be taxed later. And if the tax rates go up, you could have a problem, especially if you don't have the Schedule A deductions such as mortgage interest to offset the you know, required minimum distributions from your IRA. Right. When you're younger and you're paying off a mortgage, you might have um, enough or at least more of a a Schedule A deduction to offset any of your income. But when you get older, typically your mortgage is paid off. We have the $10,000 cap, you know, for SALT um, and real property taxes. And if your standard deduction is at this point, you know, it's only 24, well, you're going to be subject to tax. Right. And I'm not even talking about the issues with entitlements, by the way, like social security. Now there's some, they're going to be some more and more restrictions in my opinion, as far as, you know, how much is excluded from tax. Mm-hmm. So those are getting back to the reasons why you want an islet. Those are the two big things, right? big reasons why you, you want to use, not necessarily an islet, but just getting life, using life insurance as an estate planning tool. Right. Let me ask you a question. I've worked hard all my life, right? Accumulated some wealth. I have some children. Well, I'm a little bit concerned about them, right? I don't want something to happen to me and for them to get all the money at once. I've heard about these testamentary trusts. So the testamentary trust is That's what, I, mean, what I would call happy medium between the one size fits all of a revocable living trust uh-huh. and just a simple will. Okay. When I say a simple will, I mean a will that doesn't have any trust provisions or doesn't have a trust beneficiary. Mm-hmm. So a testamentary trust is part of a will and it only takes effect usually when your spouse has predeceased you and if you have children, your kids inherit from you. And if they've not attained a certain age, now how many of us have worried where 
or worried about leaving a large amount of assets, let's just say half a million dollars uh-huh. to a child who's an adult, but might be 22. Okay. So everyone who's listening, their hand is in the air now. Yes. We've thought about that. <laughs> I've had, I've had probably over the last um, five years, over 200 state planning clients. And I can only recall maybe one or two that have essentially said, you know what? If I'm dead, I'm dead. I don't care. Right. We all care. And we're worried. First of all, it's hard to know sometimes if your child's only 10, for example, mm-hmm. what your child's going to be like. We were talking before the podcast about, you know, state planning and tax planning. And with tax, I find out how an individual runs his or her business affairs. With estate planning, I find out about individuals' relationships. Uh-huh. And you really have to be honest with yourself about this, about your, your spouse, your kids. They may be great people, but they may be financially responsible, or you may just not know. Mm-hmm. Or they may be susceptible to peer pressure. So get back to the, ex- or spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend saying, hey, let's get the Bentley for 300000 that's actually happened. And I cite this example when I meet with people and potential clients talk about this. And the reason why I cite this example is it's actually happened. But not even that. Let's say a child doesn't buy the sports car. The child is just bad at managing money or in some worst cases, and we've had this where the child is a heroin addict uh-huh. or a recovering drug addict uh-huh. or a gambling addict. Something to make you worry about how they're going to preserve what they've received in an inheritance. Right. And forget about the other issues as far as maintaining a job, that sort of thing, and managing their own assets. Of course, once they inherit an asset from a parent, it becomes their own asset, of course. But you worry about all this other stuff. And on top of that, if they receive a large amount of money, chances are they don't know what to do with it. Right. So in this trust, we can spell out, you'll get a third when you're 25 and a third when you're 30 or, or however we however want to you do want it. to do it. There's no rule as far as the ages and the percentages of distribution of the principal and income from the particular trust. Right. And we can put other provisions in there too, I imagine. There are support provisions for one's health, education, right. uh, maintenance and support. Right. You can... And what you should do is include spendthrift provisions, okay. preventing that child from being able to assign that child's interest to a creditor. Right. So basically, if if they're due a million dollars when they're 25, they can't go out when they're 22 and say, listen, I have a million dollars coming in three years. Give me 800 now and I'll assign my million to you then. Is that what, yes, is that you what cannot you're do there? that. But let's not confuse with that particular example with if one wants to receive one's inheritance in advance, you could set, you could set provisions that allow that. However, if one does receive an advancement, it's actually labeled as an advancement and subtracted from their net inheritance. Got it. Got it. Okay. Good. Good to know. So we, we've talked quite a bit about the basics or, or the basis of estate planning wills, trust, it's pretty much everybody needs 
some portion of it. You'd be amazed of what I've encountered. I've met with people who had issues with figuring out how to transfer firearms. Mm -hmm. Petrus, that's actually come up, especially when one does not have any family. They just have the particular pet. Uh And in some cases, it might be just a one dog or one cat, but a lot of cases, in a lot of cases, it could be one owns a parrot that can live for Birds over seventy live years, forever, right? A tortoise, yeah, one hundred and twenty years. They might be a pet breeder. They might own an animal farm uh-huh. where you have. And this has happened where one has owned an animal farm, and they're like twenty or thirty cats. So they got to figure out the care. They don't have anybody else. They have the funds to pour into it. Right. And they want someone to um, not just give the cats away to the shelter. They want I guess, I guess every situation is different. And, you know, you have a broad range of solutions to do that. I know, I knew, know you do a wonderful job. And it's job not just side. the estate planning side of things. It could also be the business planning side of things. And Well, that's what I wanted to get to next, um, you know, because I know you do wonderful work on the, the individual you. and the family planning side of it. But you also do a lot of work with businesses and, and startups, for example. Um, what do you, what are the important things to think about, say, if you're a startup, you know, we have to put the business together and this is from a tax First perspective. First and foremost, I think we should start from a business perspective. Okay. There should be no shortcuts. Uh-huh. Someone, I know I, w- I was a finance major at Miami University. And in one of my classes, they, we were taught about the success rate of businesses. It basically think, zero. I think it was <laughs> pretty close. Pretty close and to someone, zero. I think someone mentioned like one in 10 businesses uh-huh. make it after five years, maybe three in 10 make it one year. Uh-huh. Obviously low percentages. The market, of course, is a big factor. But it could also be how you run your business operationally. Mm-hmm. It could also be your marketing, your selling, that sort of, you know, those issues. So you need a good foundation. You need a you good need foundation. To- and first place to start is what type of entity should you be? Uh-huh. Or what type of entity should you form? Right. And it could be a sole proprietor. There's nothing stopping you from being a sole proprietor, but you have to think about liability. Mm-hmm. I uh, I met someone who actually performed princess parties. So in other words, she would dress up as a princess. She'd have a few assistant princesses and, and put on parties for you know for young girls. Pretty popular. Actually. That always looks good on the resume. Yes, assistant princess. She would rent space, and she told me that she had E and O insurance and other. I didn't know, I didn't see the exact policy she had. So it's hard for me just to articulate any further on that particular side of things. But she mentioned that she had a million dollars of coverage. And I, I asked her, well, what happens if you're renting space and someone slips and falls and who knows, breaks their arm, but not even that, let's say they come paralyzed or let's say one of your instructors or assistants does something that causes liability to your company. Don't think that you aren't going to get sued for just the limits of your policy. 
you might get sued for $5 million. Then what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Now, you could direct your insurance company to settle within the policy limits, and you might be successful in doing that, but chances are you won't be. You need to do both. So for her, I recommended setting up a particular entity, and you could be a single member LLC that at least for tax purposes, you're disregarded, but for liability purposes under state law, you are a separate entity. And if the worst happens, we always think that the worst is not going to happen to us, right. but you never know. Right. That's why we have insurance. That's why I have all this other stuff because it has happened. Right. I said, if you do this, if the worst happens, you'll be protected. But keep in mind, it's not just filing. Let's say she became a single member LLC, as I just mentioned. Right. She goes and we're not going to talk about her to, to an LLC. Mm-hmm. Well, well, let's put aside a check in the box regulations where an LLC could be could elect to be taxed as a corporation, for example, uh-huh. um, a partnership if there's more than one member or sole proprietor. I mentioned that people tend to just file the one page or two page articles of organization right. with the state. Usually it's one page, it's a one page form. Now, forget about the business planning part of it, figuring out what's your purpose, what do you want to do, that sort of thing. You run the risk of anyone who sues you being able to pierce the entity veil, which means they can't, they can go past the entity and sue you individually. So you're not necessarily shielded from liability because you don't have an internal corporate documents such as an uh, operate, operating agreement if you're an LLC. You don't keep meeting minutes. You don't have separate books for your LLC. You might sign the name of, of you in your capacity as an individual and not as managing member. People have done that. And I can tell you, I had a situation uh, many years ago where we, we had a lawsuit uh, in, a, in a real estate matter. And we were, ap- we were actually able to get past summary judgment because we created a genuine issue of material fact that the person or the defendant were not necessarily operating as an LLC, even though they were listed as an LLC. Uh-huh. We created some doubt that they might be operating individually. And that was important because they had individual assets. Right. And that actually helped us uh, with getting a, achieving and, and obtaining a large settlement amount for our client. So, so you have to be aware of that. So my takeaway from, from what you just said is you can you know, you think that you're, you're going to go the what you think is the wise route and create an LLC to shield you from liability. But you do that one page, uh, articles of incorporate or, uh, what's it called? So the articles of organization, Thank you. the articles of, uh, organization, you file them with the state, you get your, your employee ID number and you think you're good. But what you're really saying is you kind of need to go past that. You need to go past that. You also because that's the basic of getting and the that's LLC the basic. is done. But, but let's really say you have multiple it. partners. Mm-hmm. Other issues come into play or you have employees. Mm-hmm. So if you have multiple partners or even just one, you should definitely have an operating agreement. You do need, need it for a single member LLC. But let's say you have two or more members. You need to have an operating agreement with certain tax provisions in there because what can happen is, and if you don't have the tax provisions, um, 
what happens is members think they're getting a certain amount of money and they're not. There's no capital accounts listed per se. Uh, Where if if one's taking money in and out of the company, that sort of thing, um, that's not accounted for. You need to have those type of provisions, uh, a tax management partner, if you will, to deal with the IRS. Mm -hmm. Um, What if a partner uh, gets divorced or gets incarcerated or decides to operate a drug house and who knows <laughs> money Sounds is like used. You, may, you may have picked the wrong business partner number one <laughs> and so you you're have, lacking good judgment there too so you should go back and- so let's say you pick the wrong business partner but you don't account for these situations uh-huh. it might be hard to get that business partner out or if the business partner dies and you got to deal with the spouse right that could be even worse okay so you want to, first of all, make sure your operating agreement uh, deals with these types of situations, but you also might want to consider a buy-sell arrangement where something happens right. in, in the situation I just listed that you can buy out the partner's interest. And it, it might be you have to take out an insurance policy if you don't have the cash to do it. Mm-hmm. Also, depending on how large your business is, I know we're talking about LLCs, but it could be anything, closely held corporations, partnerships, that sort of thing. You want to make sure the value is properly set for estate tax purposes. Now, I mentioned before that most of us won't have to worry about being exposed to estate taxes, but for you know, large businesses, mm-hmm. and when I say large businesses, I'm not talking about Apple, Exxon, those on the Dow, mm-hmm. um, Jones, you know, the 30 listed there. But what if you have like a 15 or $20 million business, a very successful business. And you, of course, you're going to probably have other assets. Right. You have to make sure that that part of it's taken care of, whether it's planning done. Right. And I'm not even talking about succession planning. I am to an extent about buy-sell agreements, but you also, you have to figure that out. We talk about uh, accumulating wealth and buying things and getting these assets, but we also have to figure out what's the exit route um, for this. One issue I, I didn't mention, but I, I think it's important to bring up is we talk about not only corporate documents, but the infrastructure of the business itself. If you get employees, you're going to have to pay employment tax. And some people like to say, well, I'm just going to classify you as an independent contractor. The IRS is not so fast. You have to, this person is under your control. Essentially, that person's an employee. You didn't pay FICA. You know, you have a problem. Or- you, so you were ten nine signing them a ten ninety nine exactly. Too, and what happens is you get your grandmother to act as the quote accountant for the business, uh-huh. and employment tax returns like form nine forty ones or unemployment nine forties are filed late, and you're subject to a huge penalty. But not only that, what about S corporations? People think. That's the flavor of the month. It's great. I can use this. I don't have to be an LLC. I was told to do this. Well, what happens if you have an S corporation, it's just you and your spouse, for example, and your S corporation generates, we'll just say $300,000 in net profit after expenses are, are paid out. If you don't take a reasonable salary, let's say you take a salary of $10,000, the IRS is going to come after you. Mm-hmm. You're on their radar. And people don't realize as corporations are a great way to avoid self-employment tax, which are, which you are exposed to if you're 
you know, a partner in a partnership or a member of an LLC, but you still have to be paying yourself a reasonable salary as an S corporation member. Mm-hmm. The other thing I want to point out with setting up a business is the necessity of keeping records. And we think that goes without saying, right? but most people do not keep good records. It could be they use QuickBooks and they don't have like a balance sheet, for example. I've had that situation where I had someone who ran a nursing home healthcare business, excuse me, had 800 employees, did not have a balance sheet and he didn't pay employment tax. He owed about two, $3 million. And what happens is when you produce your bank statements and you have the different accounts, it just shows deposit. It doesn't say what the deposit's for. And he was trying to say that he was moving around money. Well, you remember if the IRS challenges you, the burden is on you to prove that you were filing correctly. It's it's totally counterintuitive to American jurisprudence, where if you're a plaintiff, like in a civil lawsuit, you have to prove your case by preponderance of the evidence. You know, certain um, certain issues require a, a heightened standard, like there's fraud, clear and convincing, and other things. Of course, if you're being prosecuted, the prosecutor has to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. But here, the burden is on you. And if you don't keep good records, you could have a problem. Now, there is a rule out there. It's, it's modeled after a case called the Cohen rule, which if you can show some evidence of deductions, then you could be permitted to take them. Uh, court might look at industry average, that sort of thing, or see what evidence you produce. And I don't mean to go off too much on a tangent, but the point is, if you get audited and you don't have good records, you have a serious problem. So, so if you put it down, you better be prepared to prove it, right? You better be prepared. It could be like business mileage. I had someone who played, he was a musician for a church uh-huh. and his business mileage records, which by the way, were produced after the fact, after he was audited and it just said five miles church. You need to say, what was the beginning mileage? What was the ending mileage? And what was the purpose? You don't have to go into too much detail, but you got to give something to the IRS and you can't produce it after the IRS audits you. <laughs> you can't produce it after the end of the tax year. Because that usually looks suspicious. To looks them, very right? suspicious. <laughs> that's, that's something to happen. Uh, but let's go beyond that. We talk about setting up your business, the type of entity, employment agreements, for example, keeping good records. But how about entering into a business transaction, executing a business contract? A lot of people, business owners, they don't want to employ the service of an attorney. They don't want to pay the money or they figure, hey, it's, I trust the person on the other side. And they don't necessarily know what they're signing. Right. And it become a big problem. I had someone who he was, uh, he's a doctor. And he was hired to provide services to patients. However, this is part of a franchise. And for whatever reason, with doctors and dentists, the franchisee is required to get someone to partner with who's an actual doctor and a dentist. The franchisee may be the management company, but the point being is in this case, and in most cases, the doctor's name was on the LLC. The doctor did not know that his name was on there. What happened was the doctor wanted to leave the business and he did, but 
the doctor never executed any document saying I'm quitting, I'm, I'm resigning, uh, I'm transferring my membership interest, I'm no longer an officer, which the doctor didn't even think in this case that he was an officer, but he was the only person whose name was on a document and the franchisee failed to pay the required withholdings with the state. So the state accepted the return, but said, where's my money? And the money wasn't paid. Whose name is out there? The doctors. Uh. And the state went after the doctor. Uh. The doctor said, well, I've left the business. I've, I'm not involved with this. I don't run it. Well, you can't just act as an ostrich or put your head in the sand and say, I shouldn't be liable. If money's owed, your name is on the business. They're going to come after you. Sounds like he needed a good attorney like you, Adam. You know, we, we've run out of time. Um, so I tell you what, I should have done this at the beginning. Um, you know, I didn't give you the, well, who is Adam? So why don't you, why don't you give us 30 seconds on who you are, your firm, how people can reach you. Because sure. I, think, I think by listening to this, a lot of people are probably would be interested in contacting you for wills or, or from a business perspective too. So at Myers, Hurwitz and Abrahams, we view you as a client for life. We handle tax, state planning, business planning, and probate matters, also tax controversy. And uh, we also work with cannabis businesses. Um, I've been an attorney for 23 years. Uh, I went to Miami University undergrad, Cleveland Marshall College of Law for my JD, and I got a tax LM from Georgetown University. Okay. We are located in Rockville, but we operate in Maryland, DC, Virginia, and Ohio, where I got originally licensed. Okay. All right. We so can be reached at 240-283-1162. That's my direct line. Also, you can email me at aabrahams at myershervitz.com, which is A-A-B-R-A-H-A-M-S at M-E-Y-E-R-S-H-U-R-V as in Victor, I-T-Z.com. And if you want to check out our website, it's www.MyersHurvitz.com. Adam, thank you so much for coming on today. We appreciate it. You gave us a lot of great information and hopefully we'll have you back. Thank you, Eric. It's been a pleasure. At some point in the, the future. So that's all we have time for. This is Eric Whiteman for Common Sense Investing. We'll be back next week. But until then, remember, it's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow them. Okay, you've listened to the show. Now it's time for the really good stuff. So listen up. It's the disclosures. The things I talked about during the show, well, they're just my opinion and may or may not necessarily be those of the XML Financial Group. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, no. You should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I'd suggest you get someone who's qualified in these areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, they don't guarantee better results and they don't eliminate the risk of losses. In investing, there are no guarantees. Just because you use these strategies doesn't mean you'll outperform someone or something who doesn't. 
XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.